Hello and welcome to the Oxfam podcast. I'm Erin Sahan, the Chief Executive of the World Fair Trade Organization. And today we're at Oxfam's event in London on the future of business breaking new ground. In this show, we'll be talking about transforming business so it can prioritize the interests of workers, farmers and communities across the world. With me, I have Sophie Tranchell, CEO of Divine Chocolates. Sophie, hello. Hello, Erin. And uh, Lisa Duckenai, the President of the Institute for Social Entrepreneurship in Asia. Hello, Erin. Well, thank you. I've got two uh, real thought leaders in the area of uh, social enterprise, a practitioner who's been leading a a very successful uh, social enterprise and a multi-stakeholder model of of enterprise in in Sophie and and a thought leader from Asia who's been working on social entrepreneurship for many years in Lisa. Uh, Let me start with you, Lisa, in saying... We need to see a different way for, for business to evolve. And that's sort of coming through from multiple voices and is being echoed in multiple ways. What are you seeing that's starting to inspire you in Asia? Well, I think um, there is frustration over the fact that we've been growing. You know, the economies of Asia have been growing. But as the economies are growing, poverty is not improving. And at the same time, inequality is growing. Yeah. There's a lot of frustration over the fact that despite uh, all this talk about corporate social responsibility or government going into poverty reduction programs, that it's not happening. And what's inspiring in terms of alternatives? Are you, you're, you're across the social enterprise sector, you're seeing it in multiple countries evolve and, and grow. Are you seeing models that are giving us hope that a different way is possible? Oh, yes. Um, Actually, we've done many studies on social enterprises with the poor as primary stakeholders. And sometimes the poor are owners, sometimes they're partners. But um, this is a term that we have come to call many types of enterprises that are cooperatives sometimes, foundations sometimes, fair trade organizations, uh, corporations that are actually serving the poor. And um, there's, they have three characteristics. No? One is that they're social mission driven. They're not driven by profit. Uh, the second is that they create wealth. No? Um, they're, not, they're not like NGOs of the old that are dependent on grants. They create wealth, they sell products and services. But at the same time, unlike ordinary businesses, they actually have a distributive enterprise philosophy, meaning to say they create wealth But unlike corporations that amass wealth for shareholders, social enterprises with the poor as primary stakeholders create the wealth and distribute this wealth to many people, especially the poor who are their primary stakeholders. And I mean, let's turn to Sophie for a second, because Sophie, you're you're at the helm of of an enterprise that is an alternative to the mainstream model of shareholder capitalism. Uh, You've got ownership stake for for farmers that are involved in your business. Uh, When we look at your business, What's been sort of critical to allowing you to prioritise the interests of stakeholders? So I think the um, patient investors in the first place who had the imagination to see that this was a model that's time had come. And so that would be people like uh, The Body Shop and um, Christian Aid and then ultimately more recently people like Oika Credit. But also actually the British government was quite interesting because in 1998 the Department for International Development did a loan guarantee and it meant that we could have a loan with a conventional bank and then pay it back over time and pay the interest on it. And that was sort of like the farmers earning their shares. And that loan guarantee was signed off by the Ghana desk 
of the Department for International Development as a poverty alleviation program because they recognised that we were going to create multiple income streams for farmers and that our aim was to improve the livelihoods of cocoa farmers in Ghana. And uh, when we look at the evolution of your business, though, we, we, we've seen at the same time different similar businesses set up. Many haven't worked or many haven't thrived over the longer term. Yours has done well. Uh, what's been critical to that? Why has Divine done well when similar alternatives haven't stood on their feet? I think there's lots. I mean, so luck is obviously one of them, <laughs> in a way. I think chocolate's a fantastic vehicle for social change because actually everybody loves chocolate. So whether you eat it or not, you know that it's something to be associated with. And so everybody wants to join the conversation. So it's a great way to say, you know, did you know where chocolate came from? Do you know about the cocoa farmers that grow it? Have, have you ever thought about their livelihoods and whether they could send their children to school? It's a good entrance to a, a, a conversation. I think then we've also recognised that there are horses for courses and so that we are a um, quite nimble um, marketing and distribution team in the UK. We have um, managed to mobilise finance that has been patient so we haven't had to spend our time raising more finance. And then we have recruited personnel who are um, entrepreneurial and commercial. I think particularly our sort of financial team have stuck with the idea that we do need to make a margin. You know, we can't, we, we, we can't deliver on our social goals if we're not a successful commercial business. And to do that, you need to sell products at more than you buy them for. And then you need to be investing in growing, in growing your brand and your presence and your company if you are going to benefit the farmer shareholders. And so I think that sense of actually making sure that you, recru you recruit um, good quality uh, commercial people is part of the trick, rather than just people who want to do good. And, and Lisa, does that resonate for you? I mean, you're, you're looking at social enterprises emerge across Asia. Is the are the challenges that Sophie uh, is presenting, are, are they common? Are they the kinds of dynamics that you're picking up on? Are there other things that you think social enterprises are struggling with? Oh, yes. Uh, well, I think uh, like ordinary businesses, social enterprises also need to deal with uh, markets. Mm -hmm. They need to be able to sell products and services. Uh, but at the same time, I think the bigger challenge for many, of social, many social enterprises is they need to learn the art of managing multiple bottom lines. Because I think um, the challenge of being social mission driven, yeah? Uh, because of market requirements, sometimes that if you are not able to make decisions that would actually be creative enough so that you're, you're able to you know, meet both bottom lines no, of serving your primary stakeholders who are poverty, poverty sectors, but at the same time you are actually able to please your market. Uh, is that art is something that social entrepreneurs need to learn. I think that investing in communication is also very important. If you're going to manage multiple stakeholders, right from the cocoa farmers in, 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 in the field in Ghana, through to the patient investors, through to your consumers and your manufacturers, you have to invest in communication all the time. So you have to get good at telling the story because it's not just about data. And so I sort of feel as if what's happened is over, over the last 10 years, we've seen a huge increase in the available data. But actually selling stories is still really important and recognising that just because you've told the story once doesn't mean you need to, don't need to say it again. Mm -hmm. So you need to take people on a journey and all of them need to come on the journey with you so that they can be part of the decision-making processes and that they can recognise that you know, if you take the profit now, then you haven't got the money to invest in growing the business for the long run. And so you take people on a journey so that they participate in those decisions and recognise that they are sensible decisions to make. You can't just suddenly jump on people and expect them to join in the conversation. 
But I think many social enterprises that are um, just new are struggling, for example, to get the capital they need to actually become social enterprises. And when we say capital for social enterprises, I think it's different from ordinary small and medium enterprises because social enterprises often need what we call hybrid financing. They need grants to actually enable the poor to become actors in the market, to become producers, uh, to become workers, because you're actually enabling them from a, capi uh, from a state of capability deprivation. So uh, you need grants for that. You cannot use enterprise financing for that. But uh, they also need the loans and the investments for uh, them to grow as enterprises. So that kind of uh, hybrid financing, I think, is not understood very well by those who support social enterprises. So how do we get there? How do, I mean, if, we, if you're a normal business, you start up today, you're in a situation where you can promise an investor maximum returns. You will say, look, I'm giving you all the seats on the board. You can inject your money and I'm going to do everything I can to extract as much profit as possible for you over the long term. You're going to get a lower cost of capital as a result. If you're an enterprise that isn't making that promise, is saying, look, I'm going to prioritize other things, I'm going to turn over a profit, make some return, um, then you're probably going to struggle a little bit more, aren't you, to, to attract the kind of finance that you need, the Christian aids and the diffids or the, the hybrids that include grants. How, how are we going to get to a situation where these enterprises get the kind of finance that they need? I think there would be a very interesting piece of work to do to look at the hit ratio. So are social enterprises as a whole less risky as a sector to invest in? Because I actually think they might be. Mm. Um, so that, that when, when those people come in and they profit maximise and they do the model you just described, actually the hit ratio is pretty bad. I mean, so the reason they're going to take a big rate of return is because 9 out of 10 are going to fail. Mm. Whereas actually, I think in social enterprise that might not be the case. So I think that would be quite an interesting piece of analysis. I think then the other thing you have to do is you have to invest in um, educating financial institutions mm. to understand our business plans. Mm. To, to, to recognise that they are plausible. So we're certainly when we first presented our business plan, people just didn't believe it was possible. And that was true back in 1998. But it was true when we repitched in America. So we were pitching in, 19, in 2006 in America to raise finance for our American corporation. And everybody just said, you won't be able to do that. That won't be possible in an American marketplace. You won't be able to be an independent company and get to 7 million, which would mean you broke even. It wouldn't be feasible. Mm -hmm. Well, here we are today. We turn over $10 million in America and have been running a profitable operation since 2014. So it is possible, but you needed... So that was even talking to social finance people, is they didn't believe it was possible. So that sort of sense of actually there's a job to be done to talk about case studies that have worked and to get people to recognise that there are other models of business other than share optimising shareholder financial value uh, that, that have succeeded throughout the centuries. I mean, so there are fantastic cooperatives that have worked and have delivered for the community, for the people who are buying the products, you know, for everybody. Um, and they've lasted over a very long period of time. In fact, they're probably more stable than a profit-maximising uh, model. But yeah. I think now there's also interest in uh, social return on investment. Uh, that it's not just financial returns that matter, so that I think more corporations or more investors now are willing to consider having a lower rate of return, but will actually benefit in terms of social and environmental returns. You know? So maybe helping to quantify that so that it becomes real to them 
uh, you know, can help in this respect. But it's important, I think, that we educate uh, financial institutions that this is important because uh, it's not just, uh, I mean, if they are actually out to maximize returns, then they will get ordinary businesses. They will not be able to support social enterprises effectively. So I, I guess that brings us to, to the bigger challenge that, that we're all sort of scratching at here, which is how do we get that step change in the vision so that the kind of models we're talking about are part of the vision for the mainstream economy for 2035, for 2040? You know, in, in, in multiple decades' time, we're working towards an economy where the sort of businesses we're talking about are the dominant prominent part of the mainstream economy. How do, how do we get there? I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of resistance from people at the moment to even imagine a world that looks like that. I think you can start, I mean, I think, well, you've got to start from where we are. And so I think starting in things like schools and actually making sure that in curriculums you are saying that there are different ways to, that you could earn a living and there are different models of business and that there are ones that are more satisfying and more successful that could be like this. So I think starting right from the bottom would be interesting. But I think um, you know, Kate, Kate Rayworth's approach to uh, economics in university is let's change the curriculum. Let's get people to recognise that a profit-maximising model is not the only model and is not the model that will get us through to the 22nd century. And so that sense of recognising that economics should be about delivering for everyone within the means of the planet is an idea that time has come and you've got to sort of pick off each bit. So she's looking at picking off universities. I think it's good to pick off schools. It's certainly what we did with fair trade. So we recognised that chocolate had an ability to talk to children um, by saying, you know, where does it come from? What do you think about the people that grow it and things? And so we now have a generation of people who, who first found out about fair trade when they were five and six in school. So it became a matter of fact. It was unquestionable. Teachers had told you about it. It was things you learned. And so I think you probably do need to start everywhere. But I do think you need to do some serious work with, uh, in financial institutions so that they are more aware that there are successful models. Um, but you're also needing to do it in business schools. I mean, you're, ne you're needing to pick off everywhere and find the right people to pick it off in different places. But we also need to work with governments. I think governments, especially in developing countries, need to realize that if they are to get to zero poverty, zero hunger by 2030, which is the sustainable development goals they signed up, they signed up for by 2030, then they have to do more than business as usual. And I think what's interesting in Asia is that there is an interest in social entrepreneurship because there is some frustration in relation to public-private partnerships as the way to go to achieve zero poverty and no hunger and uh, you know, um, uh, jobs by 2030. And what about the social enterprise law in, in the Philippines, Lisa, that you were quite, uh, quite a big part of driving? Are, are those sorts of laws and policies important? Yes, of course. Um, that's the reason why we actually are pushing governments in Asia to adopt um, this, uh, this legislation, legislative measures. And in the Philippines, we have been at it since three congresses ago. Uh, maybe you can describe it for, us, for, for, for the listeners exactly um, what that law encompasses and how it supports well, social enterprises. Well, uh, the, the, the proposed law is called poverty reduction through social entrepreneurship. And uh, first and foremost, it's uh, first... Um, it, it's actually geared towards not only helping social enterprises or recognizing social enterprises, but we've actually talked about scale uh, to the extent that in the law, what is enshrined, uh, in the proposed law, what, what is enshrined is 
to actually consider economic subsectors as units of planning. Mm -hmm. So that in the same way that governments uh, actually deal with strategic industries that would grow the economy, we're saying you have to identify 10 strategic industries that would address poverty and inequality. Yeah? So for example, one study that we made is that in the cocoa choir subsector in coconuts, we were able to show that just developing the cocoa choir subsector in the Philippines would you know, give three million jobs. Three million jobs? Yes. And uh, because we are a major coconut producing country, but the beyond copra, which is actually the meat that is transformed into oil, uh, the other parts of the coconut have not been optimized. Yeah. What, what, I'm, what I'm viewing, and I've, I've worked on this with, with Oxfam in my previous role as well, is that the, we're sort of almost sleepwalking into a model in developing countries where we're you know, blindly exporting into the developing world the same shareholder-centric sort of Western shareholder capitalist model uh, without question. You know, and it's happening through supply chains, it's happening through investment, it's happening through policy and even aid. Is, I mean, is, are you seeing that as well, Lisa? Or is that something we need to challenge or, or, or is, it, is there an alternative reality? Well, we are trying to challenge that now. In fact, during the recent Asia-Pacific Forum on Sustainable Development, which is the main governmental body that discusses how sustainable development should be achieved in, in Asia-Pacific, there's actually openness to social entrepreneurship, multi-stakeholder platforms to transform economies yeah? and to transform communities. So that um, at the moment, there's some openness, I think, uh, for governments and businesses and working with social enterprises. Because met, um, going back to the question regarding what governments can do, um, here in the UK maybe or in Korea, there have been efforts already to do procurement uh, practices that would uh, give uh, priority to procurements from social enterprises. If governments can start saying, we will procure from social enterprises because we're not only buying coffee, we're not only buying chocolates, but we're, buy, we're actually providing jobs, then that kind of mindset shift, I think, is going to do a lot in terms of creating markets for social enterprises. So public procurement's a big thing. I mean, uh, uh, what about you, Sophie? What are you seeing as the kind of changes so governments think, can do? I think public procurement's really important. I think the government can, can set the tone. I think how they do that is difficult. Mm -hmm. And so how they put a weighting on it. And what we're seeing, I think, in the UK would be that there has been a weighting on employing local people and being social mm -hmm. enterprises. And what happens is social enterprises win the first tender round mm -hmm. of a public sector spin-off. Mm -hmm and then big enterprises come in and win the second round because the, ten, the contracts aren't long enough mm. to, in order to enable you to pay back the, the, the investment mm. and you don't win the second time. And so I think that sense of actually really uh, being nimble about changing you know, the, the legislation so that it actually does effectively deliver, I think is very important. I think they're a huge spender in all countries mm. and so public procurement is a way they can actually directly, it's about what they're buying, not what they're telling other people to do. I think they really can make a difference. But I think corporations can as well. Mm. So I think you know, corporations have all have enormous supply chains, whatever it is they're doing. And so do charities actually. You know, Oxfam does the same, it's buying lots of stuff to do lots of stuff. Yeah. And so so that sense of how do you use the power of your of your of your um, procurement to uh, perpetuate the values that are important to you is what you can push down. And I think you're seeing something quite u interesting with both B Corp 
and Unilever. So B Corp is a um, network of businesses that have signed up to uh, work in a certain way and that they're sort of verified by answering a lot of questions about how they deal with their workers, how their governance structures work, how they deal with the community and how they deal with the environment. And what it appears to be the case that um, Unilever is, is certainly recommending their suppliers to become B Corps. And then that gives them a level of transparency about how their suppliers are working with them. And so that's quite an interesting way to use soft power, sort of, in a way. It's, 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 it's not um, punitive, but it's a recommendation because it will help you run a better business, but it will also help you run a more sustainable business. And therefore, you'll be here for the long run. And if we pivot to what, I mean, we've talked about how governments can look at this differently, how corporations can look at this differently, how investors can look at this differently. If we pivot to the entrepreneurs, those, those people in developing countries or in developed countries who are looking to set up a business, what inspiration can they take from your model? Uh, what lessons can they take from your model, Sophie, if, if they are embarking on this journey today? So I think that running a social enterprise is a lot more fun than running, <laughs> running a private enterprise. And so I sort of feel like it's, it's sort of what you value in life. And so clearly, you know, in, in the end, you can only sort of, you know, wear one shirt, <laughs> get on one bike. Um, and so that sense of just profit maximising, I sort of feel as if that's sort of soul destroying in the end. And also you don't bring a group of people with you. And so I think the, the, cha the multiple challenges of running a social enterprise, where you bring your stakeholders with you, but also where you probably inspire consumers to make a choice. Mm. And so I think the people we haven't talked about so far is consumers, mm. which is all of us. So all of us every day you ch ch choose goods and services and we can make the world the way we'd like it to be by choosing those discerningly. And so I think that sense that we actually engage with consumers and get them to commit to doing things better is, is also a fun thing to do and uh, has a sort of um, uh, satisfaction and fulfillment that, you, that profit maximising doesn't do. I mean, so all right, so I've run the biggest company and now I've run an even bigger company. But you've polluted a lot and you've, you've, you've harmed people and you've made people live in, in poverty and you've made the world a less secure place where we're going to spend more money on security than we are on education. Does that make you feel good? Well, my feeling is probably it doesn't. And so I sort of feel as if my sell to young people was, would be, you know, if you want to be able to sleep at night and tell everybody about what you want to do, what you're doing, then doing it in a social enterprise it, is probably a better way to do it. It reminds me of that cartoon, and I'm not sure if you guys have seen that on social media, where um, the, the world's come to a, an almost end and there, there's war and, and there's famine and, and, and things have sort of broken down and there's a, people sitting around a, a campfire and saying, yes, sure, we've destroyed the planet and destroyed society, but for a beautiful moment in time, we maximise return to shareholders. <laughs> and it feels like we're, we're driving a little bit blindly into that direction. And, and you know, Lisa, um, you know, I'll... I'll, I'll sort of pivot to you and, and see what, what, what do you think are the messages that people need to hear, either as consumers, as entrepreneurs, or as future employees of enterprises, for them to be inspired to engage with social enterprises, for them to be inspired to engage with, with multi-stakeholder models? I think what we need to uh, show is that this can work at scale. And in this respect, I think it's important that we build platforms so that schools, governments, businesses, social enterprises, consumers, all these multiple stakeholders can work together and show that it can be done at scale. And that's the reason I think why uh, we are now pushing uh, for a platform 
for uh, which we call we did a study actually of the best practices of social enterprises in four countries in Asia and uh, in agricultural value chains and we developed benchmarks for transformational partnerships and women's economic empowerment in agricultural value chains and we're now promoting this as a basis for a platform so that agricultural value chains in Asia could actually move towards transformation and towards uh, empowering women who are invisible in agricultural value chains. So that um, maybe if we can actually get these platforms to work at scale, then we would be able to show uh, that it can be done. It can be mainstreamed. No? So I guess we need to, to not just work at promoting social enterprises as single enterprises that would do good, but we need to build value chains and we need to develop platforms at scale. I do think that's a bit what Divine has done in a way, because um, so that the farmers that voted in their AGM in 1997 to set up Divine have, um, I think, thrived because of setting up a chocolate company. So that they now have 85,000 members in 1,200 villages. They're, turn, they're, they're turning over 60,000 tonnes of cocoa. That's more than 1% of the world's cocoa. They have been committed to women's empowerment since they started. They did quotas at a village level, and they um, sent two people to the AGM from each village so that one of them is a woman. And in 2006, they elected more women than men onto their national executive committee. And in 2010, they elected their first woman president, and in 2014, their second woman president, a different woman president. They are regularly invited to speak at world events on their own behalf sort of we've made the farmers famous we've then created income streams that are dedicated to in addition to the, the the profits which they get to decide how they spend and the fair trade prices and premium which they decide how they spend but we've also created an income stream which is of two percent of our turnover which we call producer support and development and that's working with them to help build their business so what what are the problem they've got at the moment and so historically that's helped them train themselves on cooperative principles and values it's helped them build a database so that they've got good management information throughout a very big and I mean so at 60,000 tons of cocoa that's a hundred million dollar company mm -hmm. so this is at scale mm -hmm. and everybody said none of this was possible mm -hmm. and and now we're looking at things that are to do with um, women's participation throughout the whole organization because actually 35% of the members are women but they're not everywhere in the organization and they're not necessarily in the places where you get money and so we looked at what were the barriers and we found out that the barriers were literacy and so then we've been supporting very serious literacy lessons but with the Department for Non-Formal Education in Ghana so we're building a coalition on, on that sort of basis. We've also recognised that if you're going to talk to a membership that's very illiterate, then radio programmes are a good way to do that, so we've supported those things. But we've also recognised that in COCO, labour conditions are one of the things that have been a real issue. Yes. And people are sort of behaving as if either there are people in plantations who get paid to work, or there are people who are smallholders. And what we sort of suspected was that smallholders employed people. Mm. And what we found is, yes, they do. <laughs> and actually, if you want to look at the people who are doing worse, it's probably the people employed by smallholders, because they're even more invisible than all the other invisible people. And so what we've helped them do is to do a pilot scheme where they look at formalising the agreement that they have with their tenant farmers. 
Um, and that's been to the benefit of the tenants and to the benefit of the farmers because once you've had a formal agreement then you can trust each other and you can start to invest in training and inputs and start to increase the yield which will increase the income for everybody and make it a sustainable uh, relationship. So I do think that in a way one of the successes of Divine has been that fancy that there's a co-op working in Ghana which is a player in cocoa and if you want to invite somebody to speak about labour conditions or about deforestation or about women in cocoa farming You'd invite them, not me. That feels like an embodiment, Lisa, of, of your mantra, which is who is the primary stakeholder? Well, if your primary stakeholder are the cocoa farmers, then give them the power to decide how the money is spent, put them on the panels, make them famous, yeah. put their voice as the forefront of the organisation. How does that play out with the other models you're seeing? Well, I think the most successful models are similar to what uh, happened with Divine Chocolate. Um, because in Asia, for example, even in fair trade, the successful models were those that empowered the producers, women and men, small producers, to become the actors in their own development. Yeah? Yeah. So, for example, in the Philippines, there is a social enterprise called Alter Trade, who empowered their small producers, women and men, um, coconut uh, sugar sugar farmers. They used to be landless, uh, and then they were actually they became uh, beneficiaries of agrarian reform with government. But it was alter trade that assisted them to become leaders and members of cooperatives that became the supplier communities to organic sugar uh, uh, that was sold in fair trade shops in Europe and all that. But uh, at the same time, alter trade assisted them to diversify their sources of income. And alter trade assisted them to, to develop uh, community organizations that actually made decisions about health, you know, building health centers, building water supplies and engaging government to actually electrify their communities so that the it's not just value chain development in a sense but really empowering the small producers to become the actors in their own development and uh, I'm, I'm going to end with this question because uh, i worked at oxfam for seven years and i've been taught through and through that gender is the pivotal um issue that that lifts people out of poverty and creates sustainable societies um, and, and it's, it's something that's also core to the organisation I, I now lead, where we, when we looked at our members, those 400 fair trade social enterprises, we found that over 50% of them were led by women, uh, whereas in the mainstream economy it's below 10%. Uh, so it, it feels, this feels central to social enterprise, it feels central to cooperatives and multi-stakeholder models. But, uh, but Sophie, I'll start with you. Do you feel like we need to challenge uh, the, the mainstream shareholder primacy model if we are to empower women in business? Is, are the ideas we're talking about also a route into uh, addressing some of the gender issues that we see entrenched across the business world? Um, I, I think that social enterprise makes more sense to women. I think that sense of you have a real, you, you have a real sense that if you're going to give up doing something you'd like to be doing to do something else, then it needs to have value. You also can see the impact of your own actions, I think. And I, I sort of feel like we're less good at siloing. So we, we, we want it to all work. And so I feel like if you can have a multi-stakeholder model where everybody gets a say, I feel as if women would be more comfortable with that model. One of the things we've seen in Quapa is that setting up women's groups is good for Quapa, even if they're doing something completely different, because it gives those women um, confidence, but it also creates a sense of community which benefits everybody. So we, we've just run a campaign um, for International Women's Day where we got people to write on a board, you know, I believe in empowering women because, and the answer is because everyone benefits. And so I think that the, the fact that social enterprise is a more equitable way of distributing decision-making power and wealth 
um, it, it would, would, would be good for women and will be good for society as, as a whole. I think there's also an awful lot of um, evidence that societies that are unequal are bad for all of us. I mean, so the, ca the counter's true. And I think so that if you're somebody who needs more evidence base, then something like spirit level shows you in whatever context you're in, inequality is making people unhappy and ill. And so that sort of sense of it's incumbent on all of us to create a society that's more equal. And uh, social enterprises are one of the ways of doing that. And shareholder supremacy is not one of the ways. So what you've seen over time, if you plot it, is as those companies become richer and richer, inequality becomes higher and higher because more of the money is going to the shareholders and less of the share of the money is going for the people who work for it. So you, you, you've, got to, you've got to challenge this model and create businesses that are fit for the 21st century to get us to the 22nd century. <laughs> Absolutely. And Lisa, I mean, you've been looking at gender and social enterprise across Asia. What's your perspective on this? Well, I think um, many governments now are attracted to supporting women entrepreneurs. No? But um, just supporting women entrepreneurs means you're also just supporting the elite women. Yeah. So what we're pushing governments to recognize is women's economic empowerment can only happen if you actually enable grassroots women. Because in Asia, uh, one of the key barriers to women's participation is the cultural and the political environment. For example, in Indonesia, when you say uh, farmers' cooperatives are just, you know, the recognized members are just men, the household, head, the household heads. Yeah? Uh, it's a, li a little bit better in the Philippines because legally, it's now women and men who can actually become members of cooperatives and who can own land. But the cultural barriers are still there. No? That when you say farmer, when you say fisher, it's a man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in ordinary value chains, it's usually the man who is actually recognized as the stakeholder, even if it's the women who are actually working too. Yeah? So, uh, and when we talk about value chain development and not just production, women actually play a bigger role in processing mm -hmm. and marketing and maybe delivering quality. Yes, that's, that's true. And in traceability. Uh, they, uh, so we see that um, um, social enterprises have been a better way of um, purposively targeting women to enable them to become equal stakeholders in value chains. So thank you both. You've given us a glimmer of what the future could look like, where social enterprise isn't just an add-on and on the margins of the economy, but it's it's a model, it's a thought process that actually underpins a central mainstream economy. Uh, and you've also made the case, I think, for, for why we need to do it and, and all the things that, that different actors need to do from investors, consumers, governments, uh, NGOs, and, uh, and entrepreneurs. So thank you for joining us. And uh, we hope this conversation was enlightening to everyone who listened. <laughs>